Welcome to the Daddy Unscripted Podcast. Don't worry, I'm not the host. My daddy is. I'm just here to warn you about the episode you're going to hear. If you have kids like me around and you don't want them to learn any choice words, then you should give them something to do outside or put on your headphones. There's some four-letter words in this. Do you know what I'm talking about? Good, because I don't really. But my daddy said that's the point. So here comes my daddy with today's guest. Okay, daddy, where's my money? You know, I'm a filmmaker and I have some movies that people can watch. The, the one that they can see on Netflix is called Tree Man. Yeah, we made a film about the people who come to New York City every year and, and sell Christmas trees and live in their cars and in their vans and, you know, stand out on the sidewalk for six weeks selling Christmas trees. Yeah, it's an, actually, it's an interesting, uh, interesting subculture here in New York City. I'm sure. Are they living in other places and coming to New York City to do that? or Yeah, they, they, a lot of them come from Canada or Vermont. Wow. Or, yeah, and they, uh, they're not, most of them are not local. I would say like 98% are not local. Witam was, which is welcome in Polish. Welcome to the Daddy Unscripted podcast. This is Tim Wheaton. I am the podcast creator and your host, and I'm very excited to be delivering this episode to you with myself and Brad Rothschild. Brad was brought to me through his good friend Stephen A. Cook, which you can check out his podcast episodes that we had before this, which were fantastic as well. And Brad is also not only a good friend with Stephen for many, many, many years, but he is the other half of their duo on their podcast, The Amen Corner. So you can check that out as well. Brad is a really great guy, a fantastic dad who lives out in New York. And he has a really cool story about his heritage of his father and his grandfather coming out from another country as Jewish refugees and basically getting out shortly before concentration camps started getting set up in that area where they were living, which is a fantastic story of their escape prior to some potentially very bad situations happening and making their way to that amazingly great and welcoming country and the land of opportunity, America. So we will get into that story with Brad. We will also get into him being a parent to his three kids and how he successfully does that and what it is like to raise a family in New York City. So without further ado, let's get to the episode with Brad. All right, here we are with another episode of Daddy Unscripted with Brad Rothschild, the one half of the Amen Corner. You you all may remember Stephen A. Cook, who we had on here a few episodes prior to this, who talked about his partnership a little bit with Brad, um, his podcast partnership, I should specify, yeah, just I in case. So. Yeah, just in case anybody was wondering. <laughs> yeah, in case your wives are listening and are like, what? What did they say? Wait, what? What kind of partnership? <laughs> yeah. I know you guys were friends and everything. <laughs> so, Brad, welcome. 
Thank you. Thank you. I love how when Stephen was on, you guys talked about his middle initial for so long. <laughs> yeah, he was he was very specific about that. And it was funny because the first time that I looked for him on Twitter, I kept looking at all these pictures and saying, no, I don't think that's him. <laughs> and so, yeah, that that middle initial is ac- actually very important. Yeah. My middle initial is less important because there are hardly any Bradford Rothschilds floating around. And do you use Bradford with anything or? Never, never, never. Does your wife use it? No. My kids do when they want to make fun of me a little bit. Oh. And my parents used it when they wanted to yell at me. Right. But never, it was never, like if somebody, the only people who will call me that are like old relatives who really don't know me. Uh, (laughs) Probably hearing your parents use it. Exactly. But most yeah. of the people who did use it are dead now because they would have been like my parents, um, you know, older than my parents, you know, like aunts and uncles and stuff. And again, to clarify, that's of natural causes, right? You're not like threatening the people that. Oh, yeah. You of not, yeah. Most of the people that said that are dead. Yeah. Well, they're dead because they were old as they were just old. Uh-huh. Right, right, right. Yeah, It was no natural causes. I just wanted to make sure that if anybody saw you yeah. on the street. Um, very very few people call me Bradford. Yeah. Very yeah. Few. I, I, I kind of have that thing with Timothy. I think. Yeah. My mom, I, I don't, I honestly don't know if my wife has ever called me that maybe, <laughs> maybe once my mom uses it and she tries, she like tried to be cool at one point and start calling me Tim. And I was like, that just sounds wrong coming out of your mouth. Like just yeah. stick with, stick with Timothy. My mom, calls me Bradford only when she's angry. So she calls yeah. she calls me that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to keep her blood flowing exactly. like that. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean we're we're kind of jumping right in, but since we are right into the family stuff, let's let's kind of jump back into your family history. And I always tell everybody as as much as it makes sense to go back, like if that means going to your grandparents or whatnot, but Tell us about where you where you come from. Oh, where I where do I come from is a great question. I'll tell I'll start by telling this story. Uh, I have an older brother who's a year older than I am, and apparently, when he was like three or four years old, he asked my he asked our father, "Where do I come from?" And my father was like, "Oh my God, I have to have a talk about sex with a small child, and I'm completely <laughs> not ready to do this." And he said, well, you come from Germany and Opa, which is German for grandpa, came from Germany. So where do I come from? And my father said, well, you come from Germany too, even though that's not true. Mm -hmm. That wasn't true because my father uh, came to the United States in 1939 as a refugee from Nazi Germany with his parents. But but the fact that he said to my brother like that you come from Germany too meant means to me at least that my father felt that this was still even though the family had been chased out of Germany uh, my father still felt that that was where we belonged in some way mm-hmm. if that makes mm-hmm. sense which was you know a little bit there's a little sort of cognitive dissonance there because my father didn't speak German to us. My grandparents didn't speak German to us. Like they, they almost didn't want to remember it mm-hmm. or they certainly didn't want, mm-hmm. didn't want us to, to think about it. 
So I don't know any German, but somehow in my father's mind, we were still from Germany. So that's where I'm from, I guess. But I'm really, I'm a New Yorker, was born in New York, grew up in New Jersey. Uh, I'm one of four siblings. I have a brother and two sisters. And I've been living in New York City for 20 some odd years. And I have a, a wife and three kids. They are 16 13 and almost 11. Oh, you're in the thick of it then. I'm in the thick of it. You're in the thick of it. We're all in the thick of it. Yeah, that's true. Life is the thick of it. So, you know, my father passed away about 18 months after Stephen's father did. So it's now now coming up on eight years. I mean, it's seven and a half years now. And, you know, you're never, I know your father passed away a lot, a lot longer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You were much younger and you're never really ready for something like that. I mean, I guess if your father had been sick for a while then then you sort of think about it more, you, you, you get ready for it more, but there's no, there's no real good way to like prepare yourself for something like that. Yeah. And my father, my father was like almost, he was 40 years old when I was born. So he's a lot older and certainly a lot older than any of my friends' fathers were because mm-hmm. at that time there weren't a lot of, you know, parents who were 40 when they had their kids. Most people were in their 20s. So I definitely felt like he was a bit different than all the other fathers. I mean, other than the age thing, there's also the fact that he wasn't from here. So when he would tell us stories about growing up in Germany, it sort of felt like this, you know, romantic faraway place that didn't exist anymore because for his family, it didn't exist anymore. Um, So he always seemed just like this larger than life character to me. And we were, we were close. He wasn't a, um, he wasn't a big talker. He was a pretty quiet guy, but you know, I never, for a second, didn't feel that he loved us unconditionally, all four of us, you know. And like I said, they're four kids. My parents didn't play favorites. They loved us all equally, differently, but equally. Um, so I never really felt like, oh, well, you know, that one's the favorite or I'm the favorite or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But so my father was a bit, he was quiet. And because of the generation gap, there was like some distance, but it wasn't like, an estrangement. Like I always knew that my dad had my back. Like he would always be there if I was in trouble or if I, you know, got into trouble or if I caused trouble or, you know, bad things were happening. Like he was always there um, to sort of help me through it. So like I said, he, he died like seven and a half years ago and he was, he had like half a dozen things wrong with him by the time he died. He was almost 81. And he had just been in, you know, failing health for a while, but nothing that seemed to me that it was um, fatal. It was all just chronic stuff, but, but nothing fatal. And then he had he went in for a valve, heart valve replacement surgery, and he just couldn't. His body just couldn't recover from it. Mm-hmm. So about three weeks after uh, the surgery, he died, and <sighs> he he seemed like he was getting better the first few days and then something happened and he just started just saying like, I want to go home. 
I want to go home. And the hospital, they're like, you're not going anywhere. And finally, after a couple of weeks, they said to my mom, they said, take him home. Mm-hmm. And and she brought him home. It was a Monday night. And, you know, they the I guess the ENTs or whoever, the ambulance service brought him home and brought him up to his room. He went to bed and uh, he died. Oh gosh. And, oh, gosh. and, but to me, it was, you know, he knew he was going to die and he wanted to die on his own terms. So he wanted to die in his own house. So he didn't want to die in the hospital. And, yeah. you know, there's yeah. some, there's something to be said for that. And I, I don't know if it's like that he was brave to do that or if it was just like, that was who he was. He lived the way he wanted to live and he died the way he wanted to die. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was not easy, obviously. It's never easy. But I felt comforted in the fact that, you know, he went out on his own terms. Yeah. If that makes any sense. And, yeah. And were you all kind of living in near your parents at that time? Were you guys able to yeah, see I, him? Yeah, they, they, they were still in New Jersey. Uh, but when he was in the hospital, he was here in New York City. So I saw him the last time. It was on Thanksgiving of 2009 he was still in the hospital so i like i said they he came home on a monday so it was the previous thursday that i saw him which was thanksgiving and mm-hmm. so before we before we had thanksgiving dinner at our apartment i went i walked across central park and went and visited him in the hospital and you know like i said i didn't think that that was it yeah yeah you never yeah, think yeah. you never think like oh my god this is the last time i'm going to see him Right. Maybe, right. maybe if you do, you're lucky. Like maybe if you know that you're lucky because then you can say the things that you want to say. Right. Right. And not like walk out and say like, Oh yeah, I'll be back. And you know, we'll, we'll talk again. But you know, I don't know other than just like having one last time to just know that it was the last time there's really not much else I would have done differently. I think. Yeah. Which is somewhat relief i mean i don't know relieving is not the word but yeah comforting yeah comforting in some in in a weird way and um you know i don't know how familiar you are with the jewish ritual of shiva mm, i'm about to learn something new yeah you're gonna learn something new do you know anything about shiva uh i'm have recently just found out through my brother's dna testing uh-huh. which may or may not be 100% accurate 100% for me yeah he found out that we are or he is 22% jew oh which was shocking because my mom and my mom's side of the family is extremely german uh-huh i mean there are of course german jews and you're, you're speaking uh, you're speaking to yes, one yes and i'm speaking to one now so so i'm somewhere in that boat but that's so right we don't practice obviously I don't practice because I'm so good at it. I don't need to practice anymore. <laughs> I'm doing <laughs> it for real. Exactly. I don't even practice this shit. Can I say that on your yes, podcast? Yes, you can. I, I I had to mark it explicit at the very beginning because I knew people would be cussing. So how about it? Yeah, Stephen and I, Stephen and I let it all let it all yeah. hang out on the podcast. And, and sometimes his daughter says, like, your language is not very good. <laughs> And actually, mine is pretty is worse. And whenever she says it, I'm like, you know, I tell your dad all the time that he really needs to stop, and he's the one who causes me to talk like that. Yeah. And of course, everybody knows. Yeah. Everybody knows that that's not true. <laughs> anyway, so back back to Shiva. 
Shiva is a seven-day mourning period immediately after the body is buried. So in the Jewish religion, the body is to be buried within one day of death. And then for the seven days after that, you have what's called Shiva, and Shiva is Hebrew for seven, so seven days of mourning, where basically you sit in your living room or your mom's living room or your sibling's living room and people come and visit you for seven days while you sit with your family and mourn. Right. And there's some level of genius to this because it really works. If you feel, I can't even describe what it feels like. You sort of return back to your childhood because you're with your you know, I, at least in my case, I was with my mom and I was with my brother and sisters. And you see people from all your life, like your whole life. People just walk into your house, like from high school and college and your professional life and, you know, your friends who you knew from when you were a kid. And you just, you're, you relive your whole life in a week. And it, there's something very comforting about it. And then it's sad, obviously, because you're, you're, you know, there to talk and more about the person who died and to mourn the person who died. Uh, but it, it does feel like you become this sort of cohesive unit again, if only for those seven days. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I, I had a good experience during Shiva. I mean, I felt, I felt enveloped in the warmth of my life. Yeah. Yeah. Now that you're saying this, I do know about it only because of the movie. This is where I leave you. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, I saw that on a on a on a plane the first time, and I'm because I mean I don't think that that's something that I would gravitate towards in general. But I watched it, and mm-hmm. then every time it comes on cable, I find myself watching. Yeah, it. yeah. My wife loves that movie. That's Shiva, and that is you know, like I said, it's kind of there's there's some level of genius to it, I think. And but, you know, and, and you know, you know this. So, but the mourning process is not linear. Right. You don't know what day you're going to feel good and what day you're not going to feel good. And, you know, sometimes it's better and sometimes it's worse. But it's certainly, you know, over the course of time gets better. Yeah. And those those seven days after, I mean, obviously you're going through a massive number of things, including in many cases, I mean, not all, obviously, but in many cases, going through the shock of what has just happened. Yeah. So, yeah. so, I mean, I can only imagine sitting Shiva for, for a week after my dad died, which, you know, we, he was going downhill. It wasn't like a complete shock to us when he died, but I just can't imagine at uh, barely 18 years old sitting for a week. Yeah. Especially with my seven brothers and sisters oh my God. and my mom who is, who would have just not been able to do it. I, I can't imagine how some families do that. That's for sure. So you have seven brothers and sisters. Yeah. I'm the youngest uh, in a family of eight. Wow. Which, um, I don't have many scars exterior, <laughs> but you were the baby. They, they babied you. Didn't they? Um, yeah. I mean, it was weird with my family because my, my oldest siblings were kind of loose and crazy. You know, it was the sixties, seventies, and my dad was a pastor. And so when my oldest 
three oldest siblings were kind of a little too out there. The rest of us got sent to private school uh-huh. and, um, you know, it was kind of all downhill from there. <laughs> so they made all the mistakes. They made the mistakes with the older kids and you had to pay for it. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it was more of a, of a tightening yeah. through the middle and then towards me and my brother, the youngest two, it was a totally different experience because everybody else was kind of out of the house, sort of. And my mom was in a much different place filled with garage sales. And my dad was working two jobs, basically. And so it was a, I wasn't really a latchkey kid, but uh, there wasn't a lot of time at home with the parents that I think my older siblings probably experienced. Sounds like you were on your own a lot though. Yeah. Um, not to a detrimental amount or anything like that, but we, I mean, it was during the seventies and the eighties too. So we, you know, we were during that time where you stayed out until the street lights came on and right. Exactly. And, exactly. You know, we walked down to the beach. And Just go out and play with your friends. Come, yeah. 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 I mean, that was kind of what it was like growing up in New Jersey at that time. Also it was sort of like, just go out and run around and come back when you're done. And try not to get into too much and, trouble. And how much different was New Jersey childhood from New York childhood for your kids? Uh, you know, that's a great question. I think in a lot of ways, my kids are really lucky to be growing up in New York City. And you think like, oh my God, how can you raise kids in the city? It's so difficult. It's so this and so that. Everything in our lives is within walking distance here. Mm-hmm. So when they were really little, you just take them outside and walk them around. You don't have to pack them into a car. You know, the city becomes the playground. And, you know, obviously there are parks here too. We, the, the thing that we don't have is a backyard, right? So it's not as if they could, you know, just go out, find the neighborhood kids and play in the backyard. It It, right. requi- it requires a little bit more. And I think just parenting in general these days there's more parental involvement yeah so it just requires a bit more oversight especially when they're younger but you know my my oldest who's now 16 uh, i have one boy and two girls so jordan is the boy and when he was little he was really into thomas the tank engine any of your kids into thomas the tank engine uh yeah not to a crazy extent but they enjoy it so when he was like four, he got into it. Three, four, five, I think was the big was the sweet spot. There was a store on Broadway and Eighty First Street where, on the second floor, they had train tables that they just laid out there and trains that the kids could just play on. So on mm-hmm. a rainy day, you know, what are you going to do with the kids? Oh, let's take them to Essentials and let them play on the trains. Let them play with the trains for three, four or five hours. Yeah. 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 And I mean, we spent, we spent a lot of time doing stuff like that. And, (laughs) and, you know, they, he would also just be into riding the subway. Mm. So it's like, well, what are we going to do today? I want to ride the subway. All right. Get on the subway. Where do you want to go? We'll figure it out. That's cool. Yeah. So that was cool. But uh, my girls, so I have, like I said, one boy, two girls, they were never really into that scene as much, but they've all, you know, grown up riding public transportation and getting on the subway. 
and um, you know, walking to whatever they want to do around here. And they play sports just like you do in the suburbs or leagues and teams and, you know, you name it. Um, it just, to me, it seems it's a lot easier here. And the kids go to public school and there are some really good schools in, in our neighborhood on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And uh, they've had a, I wouldn't call it an idyllic childhood, but they've had a really good childhood. I couldn't, I mean, obviously you'd have to ask them but I can't point to anything that they would say like, wow, this was, uh, you know, it was really bad growing up in the city or I yeah. really wish, you know, every once in a while when we'll be at friends houses out in the suburbs, they'll look around and be like, wow, they have a lot of room. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you want to move out to the suburbs? They're like, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. So nobody has ever really expressed like remorse that we live here in the city. But I want to tell one story about the subway, though. I think you'd probably get a kick out of this. Last year, last it was got to be like June of last year, I was with my now 13-year-old on a Saturday afternoon taking her to a friend's birthday party in the Times Square area. So we went and we bought her friend a gift card from Starbucks and we got on the subway to go to a bowling party. And it's a beautiful Saturday afternoon. We get on the subway and there's a guy smoking crack. Wow. This never happens, by the way. Like, this is like, this is some like, you know, dystopian version of New York City. It just, it doesn't happen like this. So we're there and we're like, all right, let's not make too much, too big of a deal of this. And then at the next stop, another guy gets on and sits down pretty close to where I'm sitting and he starts smoking crack. Oh my gosh. So there's not, there's not one, not, there's not one, the two sm crack smokers on the same subway car, which again, middle of the day on a, on a June Saturday, you know, it doesn't happen. Does not happen. So the second guy who comes on, you can see he's like dead behind the eyes. There's like, there's no one home. So he, and, and this, I don't know if you've ever smelled what, what crack smells like being smoked out of it. I actually have not. Yeah, it's gross. I mean, there's just a real acrid smell and it's like unmistakable. It's, it's horrible. And he takes a few hits off the pipe and then he reaches into his jacket and he pulls out a tree branch. <laughs> and he starts like swinging it around like it's a knife. So my daughter freaks out. The two, yeah. the two women sitting next to my daughter freak out and they all get, they all stand up and walk across to like where the doors are to the, to the train car, the subway car. But you can't go anywhere because the subway's moving. Right. Yeah. You're basically so, waiting. Yeah. You're waiting. So I'm thinking, all right, I'm going to, I put myself in between my daughter and the guy. And I said, no matter what's going to happen, I'm going to take care of this. And I have to, I have to tell you, because we've never met, I'm not a big guy, okay? Mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not physically intimidating to anybody. But I said, whatever's going to happen, I'm going to take care of this. It's just, you know, there's no option. You have kids. You know, what this, yeah. you know what this is. So the first crackhead walks over to the second crackhead, and he says, man, what are you doing? He said, I'm doing this too, but you're scaring these people. He's like, <laughs> he's like it's not what you do, it's how you do it. But the guy was so far gone, he didn't even hear him. And then I look at my daughter, and she's like, 
I dropped the envelope with the gift card. I'm like, what? And I look, and she dropped the envelope with the with the gift card in it, and it was literally right underneath the guy. Like when she got oh up, gosh. she was so freaked out that she dropped the card. Yeah. And, and I'm like, I'm getting it. And she said, what? I said, I'm getting it. She's like, you can't get that. I said, that's $25. I'm like, of course I'm getting it. <laughs> so I like walked over, grabbed the card off the ground and went back to her. And, um, and then there's a guy who came up to the, to the crackhead and he said, when this train stops, I'm taking you off. I'm taking you off the train. So the train stopped at 42nd Street. We got off. I saw this guy take the crackhead off the train. And when we got off, I looked for somebody who works for the MTA. And I said, you should know that there is a gentleman smoking crack on the, on the, mm-hmm. on the train platform. And she's like, on this platform? I'm like, yeah, you might want to check that out. So we get off the train. My daughter is freaked out out yeah i mean she's totally freaked out and we get up on the street and she's like i'm never riding the subway again (laughs) and i said i said are you kidding me i'm like you've just proved to yourself that you can survive this you made it through i said this is never going to happen to you again (laughs) that's the worst of it that's it that is literally the worst that's going to happen to you and you and you've survived so let's move on and uh, you know she was not psyched, but, but like, sorry, that's the that's the world we live in. Like, you're gonna get back on yeah. the subway, and you know, I don't think she thinks about it too much since then. Right. But I have retold that story a few times, um, so I do make <laughs> I do make her relive it a little bit. But that was that. Well, I, I mean, that's the exception rather than the rule in New York. Like that, yeah. that just doesn't happen. When I was in high school, we used to have to take the public bus Uh from our city in Laguna Beach to another to our school in San Clemente we had to transfer buses when we were in first grade we were riding the bus and it was it was a few of us kids who were all on there and then eventually it was just three of us and then two of us and in high school I had to take the bus a few times and we took one probably my sophomore or junior year. And there was a girl who was a year above me that was with us. And there was this guy who was just being really weird. And I remember him just, which is kind of mean to say because I usually wear a beard. Uh-huh. But he had a beard, which made him kind of weirder to us back then. And I'll remember that now when I'm wearing my beard around kids. <laughs> wearing my beard like it's a jacket or something. Apparently, can you leave the beard um, home today? Yeah, I get, yeah. You're gonna you're gonna be around kids. Just take your beard off today. <laughs> but he was he was in like a old clothes and just kind of a freaky guy and was creeping this girl out. And I can't remember what he was saying, but he was like kind of whispering something under his breath to her and really freaking her out and. She made me ride the bus a little bit extra so I would be getting off at the same stop as her. And he got off the bus as well and was kind of he was kind of following us around. And we went to the payphone. This is how old the story is. And what's a payphone? Dialed 911. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you dialed 911. Uh, we dialed 911, which 
honestly, back then it may not have even existed. We may have had to dial zero and ask for the police, <laughs> but, uh, we got the local cops down. We kind of stood around until they showed up and he ended up being wanted for murder in like Northern California or something. What? And was, had warrants out and yeah, it was crazy. And we were like, Oh my God, that thank God we didn't get killed by him. I mean, that was our thought of course, as teenagers. That is way worse yeah, than the yeah. crackhead on the subway story. <laughs> Yeah. So tell your daughter that New York is way more safe than Southern California. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. That was pretty a, crazy. That's, that's a crazy story. Yeah. I haven't thought about that in a long time. So you've tried to put Thanks. that out of your mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good luck. I'm gonna sleeping. get like killed repeatedly on buses tonight yeah. in my dreams. Good luck sleeping tonight and for the next yeah, six yeah, months. <laughs> so let's go back to your dad because yeah that's obviously a very big story and and i don't know if it is or not like did he share a lot of that experience and his childhood there to you yeah you know we sort of we heard a lot of the stories about germany but i guess you know we always like i said earlier there was always like this like romantic aspect to the stories like he he grew up in this really small town outside of frankfurt and his family had a horse and they had some humongous dog that you know he would just tell us those stories about like just what it was like growing up there and it seemed just so far away mm -hmm. but then he also started as we got older telling us and it was obvious we knew i don't even remember learning like i just knew this intuitively i guess my whole life that things went bad in germany and you know this this life this idyllic life with the you know the horse <laughs> and the dog came to an end when you know they were forced to to leave so we always knew those stories and you know there's a difference between being a refugee and being a Holocaust survivor. So my father and his family, they left Germany before the Holocaust really started. So they were never in, you know, concentration camps. They were never in ghettos. They didn't really, mm -hmm. they didn't experience that. They were refugees. They were, you know, stateless people who came here with no money and had to start all over again. My dad right. and my dad spoke no English when he came here. His parents spoke no English, and it was obviously much harder for them as adults. And as adults, you know, my grandfather, who was a successful merchant, came here and had nothing and had to go to work in, you know, like the garment in a garment factory somewhere in New York City. Mm -hmm. um, and life was really hard for them here. Obviously, it wasn't so easy the last few years in Nazi Germany either. But, um, you know, we we definitely we heard the stories growing up, and a couple of years ago, I stumbled across a video testimony that my father gave about his life or about his early life in Germany. I don't know what possessed me to do a Google search on my father because you know mm -hmm. his um, he was not a big computer guy. Like he just you know his cyber footprint was <laughs> was not that big. But I did yeah. a Google search on him and I found this uh, testimony that he did for a local college. 
Um, mm. And I knew that he had done it because I had heard that he did it, but I never watched it. And it's like an hour long. And it was really weird, like seeing my father from 1988 um, and hearing his stories. And it was, it was good to like have these stories reinforced because, you know, hearing them all at once, you know, I was like, oh yeah, I know that story. And I know that story. Maybe I didn't know that detail, but it was, um, he definitely, you know, it wasn't that we, I never had the sense that he was like shielding us from any like harsh truths about what happened to them there. I'm breaking up the conversation with the kind of cool opportunity that we have due to the conversation that was recorded with Brad's dad by Keen College. I'm going to insert some of that conversation in here for all of us to be able to get that storytelling directly from his father. Thanks to that recording, we're going to get to hear those stories directly from that 1988 interview with Brad's dad. I was born in a town called Herstein, West Germany. The next largest city was Aschaffenburg, which was about 60 miles from there. And the really largest city was Frankfurt am Main, which I would say was about 75 miles from Herstein. There were about 60 Jewish families living in Herstein, and about 30 of them were named Rothschild. Some were related, but I think this goes back to the time of Napoleon, where he forced surnames on most of the population in Germany. So I guess they must have had a red shield, and that's the name Rothschild, to the time of Napoleon, where he forced surnames on most of the population in Germany. So I guess they must have had a red shield, and that's the name Rothschild. My father was the youngest of eight. His father died when he was two and a half of pneumonia. There was my mother, my father, my brother and myself, plus a maid and sometimes two maids. We lived in a, an old house uh, and then there was an addition to the house which was part of the business. Uh, we had a dog who when the Nazis started to come in to power, our next door neighbor shot him and killed him. Even though I didn't like the dog, I you know, was sorry to see that he killed him. When Hitler started coming to power and people started talking about uh, Hitler's program against the Jews, most of the German Jews were saying, it's not against us. We're good Germans. We're good Jews. It's mostly the Hinderjuden, the bad Jews, the, the ones that haven't assimilated or the ones that don't want to act like cultured Western civilization. And they couldn't believe. Everybody was saying Hitler was a madman. He's only going to be here for a short time. I remember sitting in my uncle's house, who lived in the same town, and listening to the radio as the Nazis marched into Vienna. And they couldn't believe it. They said, I thought by this time the Germans would have kicked him out already. This, This is a madman. And until my father was beaten up rather badly. He didn't want to leave. My father one day, I don't remember the exact circumstances, 
But one of the townspeople we had known whipped him. But everybody thought this was going to go away. And when this happened, my father came. I remember my father coming home. I must have been about seven years old. And he said to my mother, write to your relatives in America to send us a visa. My father had a brother who was one of the top industrialists in Germany. And he used to come to visit us twice a year. And my father asked him, what we should we do? And he said, what are you going to do? You speak the language here. You have potatoes to eat. Stay here. There's nothing to worry about. Well, he perished in a concentration camp. So the German Jews were lulled that, you know, this wasn't happening to the good Jews, quote unquote. This was happening to the other Jews until they really felt it, like my father being whipped. That's the first time he knew something was wrong. They didn't believe it. It affected them, that it was was directed against them. They were good Germans. My father fought in the German army in World War I for four years. He was decorated. He was one of... He, his brothers fought in the, They were proud of this, just as I was proud that I served in Korea in the American army. This was their country. Mm -hmm. I mean... The Germans were industrialists, they were professors, they had held high positions. They were attorneys, they were doctors. You know, nothing is going to happen to them. Well, a few things happened. Uh, first of all, the, uh, the Jews were not allowed to have their business open on Sunday. One Sunday morning, the police called and said that somebody broke into my father's business and would he come down? And as soon as he unlocked the door, they arrested him for opening the store on Sunday. And they were threatening to put him in a concentration camp. And they were talking to him, not the police, but the SR, from what I understand, about giving his business to his Aryan employees. The next thing... That happened was in 1938, about uh, three months before Kristallnacht, a whole group of German youth from outside of Herstein came to Herstein and Friday night went through the town yelling, Herstein is going to be Judenrein. We're going to make Herstein Judenrein. And they started breaking windows and knocking on doors. And any Jew they found out on the street, they beat them up. And especially on Saturday morning when they went to synagogue, they were all beaten. So, being orthodox, he waited till it was a Saturday night and he called my mother's uncle in Frankfurt and he sent the car and we went away. My parents uh, rented a room in Aschaffenburg and then the next day took us to Bad Nahum to go to school. Jewish boarding school, my brother and I. And we stayed there until crystal night. And the next morning, it was, I think it was SS that came to the school, told everybody to go out into the schoolyard and to take things with us because they were going to burn the school down. And... Uh, they were, had us lined up, and I couldn't find my younger brother, who at that time was about uh, six years old. And I started to cry because I couldn't find my brother, and I, I 
somebody said, I saw your brother go up to the attic because that's where our suitcases were. And I wanted to get into the school and they wouldn't let me in. But one of the SS men just took pity on me and he asked me why I'm crying. And I said, I'm looking for my younger brother who's up in the attic trying to get a suitcase. Well, he went up and he got my brother and he threw him out bodily onto the ground. He said, here's your brother. They then marched us off to the police station through the city. And at the police station, they had two machine guns set up and they said they were going to kill us all. And we were waiting there for hours and nothing happened. And then they said we could go back to the school. Well, that night my parents came and picked us up from the school and we went to live with them in a one room in Aschaffenburg. And my parents packed a lift with all their possessions that they sent off to the United States. And somewhere along January of 39, I don't remember the exact circumstances, but somebody came to warn my father that they were coming to arrest him, to put him in the concentration camp. So when they came to warn my father that they were going to come to arrest him that morning, he took my mother, my brother and I, and we got onto a train and went to Holland, where one of his brothers was living in Amsterdam. And from there, we stayed a few weeks, but since we didn't have any permits to, to stay in Holland, we went to England. From there, we went uh, to Paris and stayed in Paris three days. And then we went back to Amsterdam and stayed there again. And again, we went back to England, this time to Liverpool, to take a boat, the Europa, for America. Now, I know that uh, my uncle, by marriage, was thrown in a concentration camp at that time. My mother's uncle in Frankfurt was thrown in the concentration camp. Uh, my mother's brother had been charged as a defiler of the Aryan race. They claimed that he had had sexual relations with a a German married woman whose husband worked for him. Uh, there was, I remember one day going to the train station and seeing these pictures mounted there and there was my uncle. And I said to my mother, why is, you know, your brother's picture up there? And she didn't want to tell me. And they hired a lawyer. There was a big trial that went on for months and it was proven that my uncle had not been involved with this woman. But I remember that the lawyer who defended him was thrown in a concentration camp, and he escaped, to, my uncle escaped to England. In fact, he just died this past year. Did the other people you mentioned who had been thrown into concentration camps survive? My uncle, my by marriage who was married to my father's sister, he survived. They released most of those that they picked up on Crystal Night within about six to ten months. And they fled to England. Where were they sent? To Dachau? I think it was Dachau. You know, his father had a business and he had to he had the business taken away from him, or I guess he had to, you know, in theory, sell it to his Aryan employees. 
Mm. And they had a house which they had to leave, and they, you know, they they left pretty quickly. Uh, but my dad was young. I think he was about ten years old when he came to the states. Maybe you know nine, probably like between nine and ten. And they came here to the Upper West Side, and my father went to junior high school in the same building where my two girls go to school now. So it's really, really yeah, wow, yeah. It's kind of a, a crazy, um, crazy thing to think. Like he, yeah. he walked these hallways when he was a, a kid, when he was, you know, this immigrant trying to figure out, you know, how to speak English and how to fit right. in. And you know, he didn't really talk so much about um, what it was like here in the beginning. I think it was really hard. You know, like uh, they had no money. And they had no real understanding of what what they were doing here. You know, they're like, mm -hmm. in the, they're in this country called America. And now you're, you know, 10 years old and you're being put back into, you know, whatever grade you're in because you don't speak the language. Uh, right. And I think it was tough. And do you know, did they like kind of come over here alone or did they was there a group that they came no, in, they, you know they had some relatives here who signed papers mm -hmm. to bring them over but you know they were on their own my, yeah. my grandparents had to find jobs and my father and his brother went to school and uh i don't know other than you know the family the, the cousins or whomever else was here there was no real i, I don't think there's like big support groups back back in those mm -hmm. days um, but there were lots of German Jews who came to New York City in the late 30s and early 40s. So they weren't alone in that sense, right? There were other people in similar circumstances. Yeah. And my father, you know, until the day he died, like some of his closest friends were the kids who he grew up with here who were also German Jews. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, but... You know, the the other part of his background that he talked about much less was that he also served in Korea. Oh, really? So, oh, really? yeah. So imagine, imagine, you know, Gosh, you leave yeah, Nazi kind of, Germany yeah. as a small child, you come here, and then uh, 10 years later, you get drafted. That's, that's quite the uh, turn of events. Yeah, that sucked. And so he went and fought in Korea, and he never, ever spoke about this. Oh, really? Yeah, we would try to get some information out of him, and he just, it was obvious that this is not a subject he wanted to discuss. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, things were different back then. Like, like like I said, he was older, he was of a different generation. When the father said, I'm not talking about it, nobody pushed. Yeah, yeah. You know, if I tell my kids I don't want to talk about it, they don't care. <laughs> they're still, <laughs> they're still. Well, plus, like, I'm sure that you've, not that you haven't thought of this, but I'm sure there was a huge tie-in to and possibly a dilemma for him mentally or morally or ethically or whatever to leaving his country because it was at war, basically, coming to this other country and having to go to another country at war. Yeah. Um, but, you know, my father was a patriot, right? He loved... America because mm. America saved his life. So Right, right. That being said, I don't think he wanted to go to Korea very much. But um, yeah. but I don't think it ever crossed his mind that he wasn't going to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like back then that just was not 
an option. Like, no, your country's calling you and you're going. Sorry. Yeah. And patriotism was a little bit different back then than it is now, too. Yeah, that, that is true. <laughs> it seems. But I, yeah, you know, he was a pretty staunch uh, conservative, though, his whole life. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I grew up um, being told this is the greatest country in the history of the world. And don't you ever forget it. Because for him, it was like, again, you know, America saved him and his family. Right. Yeah. So how can you argue with that? Fortunately, somebody's making America great again. Exactly. I'm really happy that we're going to be great again. (laughs) Um, But, you know, my one of my sisters said to me after the election, she's like, you know, dad would have voted for him, too. And I thought Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, dad wasn't the pope. Dad wasn't infallible. He and I certainly had yeah. many, we had many disagreements about many things and politics was one of them. Um, so the fact that, you know, he may have voted for Trump, like maybe, maybe, you know, doesn't really change how I think about it. Right. What do you do? Yeah. It's a theoretical debate at this point. Right. Well, my mom is a very religious conservative. Yeah. But she, she was born in 1931, which probably isn't too long after your, what year was your dad born? 1929. So yeah. Same year as my yeah. dad. Yeah. And you know, my mom will vote for whoever has an R next to their name. <laughs> right. Pretty much. I can't imagine her ever deterring from that. So yeah. So I just have to run and grab her mail before she mails in her ballot <laughs> next time. <laughs> exactly. I swear it's going to get there, Mom. Yeah. Oh, no, no. I took care of the mail. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. We talked about, like, uh, distracting my mom on election day so she wouldn't go to the polling station. <laughs> mm-hmm. They've got this free all-day movie today. Yeah, we're, we're just going to hang out here. Uh, don't bother getting up. You're good. All the tires are flat on the car. It's crazy. Exactly. In the city, we don't have cars, though. <laughs> oh, yeah. So your mom is there in New York City well, now? you know what? Now she is. In the last, I guess, two and a half years ago, she moved into the city. And it makes more sense for her. You know, she didn't need to be in the big house by herself. Yeah. And certainly it was getting harder. Like, you know... Not everybody needs to drive. <laughs> no, no, you're right. She hit a point where she shouldn't be driving anymore. <laughs> and if you yeah. can't drive yourself around, then you can't be in the suburbs. You yeah. know, it just doesn't work. So the city is a much easier place for her to be. So she lives not far from, from us across uh, across the way here. That's cool. Are your siblings also in New York? Yeah, I have... Uh, Two of my siblings are in New York. One is in New Jersey. Yeah, we're all in the neighborhood. We see each other uh, relatively frequently. But you know, everybody has their own family and their own life, and you don't see yeah. you, know, you don't see them as often as as one might think. Is your wife and her family from the East Coast as well? Yeah, they're from Maryland. She grew up in Maryland. Oh, okay, outside of Washington D.C. But you know, uh, interestingly enough, she's the one who never wanted to move out of the city. Most people, you know, they graduate college, they move to the city, they spend a few years in the city, they get married, and then they have a kid, and the kid hits a certain age, and they say, well, we got to get out of the city. Yeah. Nobody raises kids in the city. Yeah, and then they move to the suburbs, but we never did that. My wife was like, no, I have no interest in moving to the suburbs. And quite frankly, I didn't have much of an interest in it either, but she really 
didn't want to do it. So it never really came up. Yeah, but so we're both, you know, suburban kids who just prefer urban living. What did her dad bring to the table? And did her parents kind of instill parenting styles into her that she brought to your partnership with her and parenting your kids? You know, her her father, he was certainly like back in those days, you know, the the roles of the father and the mother were definitely better delineated. Like he worked outside of the house, came home and expected to have dinner on the table. And that's what happened. So six o'clock was dinner. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, six o'clock is dinner. My dad, on the other hand, he also was extremely, you know, set in those gender roles, like never cleaned a dish, never cleared a plate, never cooked a meal. But unlike uh, my wife's family, my father, when he would come home, he would come home a little bit later and he would commute in from the city he would not want to have dinner with all of us when he came home. He needed like mm-hmm. he needed time to just to have quiet, to just sort of, you know, detox from his day. And he did not want four screaming children at the dinner table with him. Mm-hmm. So we were to be fed before he came home. Uh, so would he sit at the dining room table and eat on his own or well, would you he know, eat? my mom would serve him and like she would sit with him. Yeah. And then, you know, he would drive us to school in the morning and he would be with us in the morning. It's not that he didn't want to be with us. It's just he needed like that downtime. He just needed to chill. And, you know, you learn pretty quickly, like, all right, you're not going in there because he needs to chill and you don't want to get in the way of that. Yeah. But he was an early riser. And when I would sometimes in high school, I would wake up early to study. If I didn't feel like I had, stu- like if I had a test or something, I didn't feel like I studied enough the night before, I would wake up early and I would sit at the kitchen table studying and he would be there with his coffee and his newspaper. And yeah, it was always nice. Like he really liked having us around, even if he didn't express it, like even if he didn't talk, like mm-hmm. he, just, he just wanted us physically near him. Like just looking across the table was all he needed. It was mm-hmm. literally all he needed. It's just like he wanted to know that you were there. Um, so I remember, I remember mornings with him more than like dinner time because dinner time was mm-hmm. just like, no, no, you guys have to be taken care of before before I come home. <laughs> be done eating by the time yeah, I'm seriously, home. Seriously, and I don't want to see you. You know, the interesting <laughs> thing though, my parents, after we all grew up and left home, they seemed to get along better with each other uh, as they got older. Not yeah. that not that they you know didn't get along with each other when we were there, but you know there are four kids. You know this. You had seven kids in your house. There's just mayhem mm-hmm. all the time, right? Yeah, um, craziness. Yeah, but I really saw uh, you know as an adult that my parents genuinely liked each other. Like forget about love each other. Like they liked spending time together. Mm-hmm which is also a nice thing to see. Like, you know, a lot of, not a lot. There are certainly, once the kids leave, there are parents who say, that's it, I'm done. Right, yeah, well, <laughs> well, we can finish pretending now. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we stuck it out long enough and now the <laughs> yeah. assholes are gone, so. 
Yeah, that's a tremendous thing to be able to see, especially as you are older and very cognizant of what's going on and getting to see that kind of transition in your parents to what they do with the empty nest is huge. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it always, that also gave me comfort that they, you know, that they liked spending time together because that's all they did in their last few years was be with one another. Yeah. My dad, my dad loved his house. Like he just loved having a house that was his and you know, they didn't have like a second home. They didn't have like a beach house or a vacation house or a Florida house or whatever. They had their house and that was it. And my, and my dad loved it and wanted, like he would have been buried in the backyard if they would have done it, which is why I think he wanted to go home so he could die there. You know, like that was home. That was really home. And with my mom, maybe it was just because of how, you know, he grew up and mm-hmm. it's just, sense of like you know being displaced mm-hmm. finally had like this this home that was his and that nobody was gonna take from him yeah i'm sure because of his youth and everything that things that were stable and possessions and responsibilities and and you kids had a completely different meaning and impression on him than the average Joe. Yeah, I think there's probably a lot to that. I do. I don't know if I ever thought about it in those terms, but I think I think you're right. It did mean a lot, even if he, you know, couldn't articulate it. And he could mm-hmm. articulate it. Like he, you know, he never um even if he, he was not a big talker, he always would tell us that he loved us. Like there was no you know, he wasn't like emotionally remote. Mm-hmm. You know, he would always say it. Um, and he never had a problem expressing the fact that he loved us because he really, he did. Um, and it was, it was obvious. It didn't need to be, you know, he didn't need to have three hour conversations with us to get his point across. Yeah. Do you, do you think that it was, or do you know how it was between his dad and yeah, yeah, his him father. in that way. Yeah, his father, I think, was remote. Also, like, I mm-hmm. don't think his, I don't think his father told him that he loved him. Mm-hmm. Right, not very often. And again, you know, we're talking about Germans who right. are, you know, you had Germans in that age as well. Yeah, they're formal, right? These are yeah. formal people. Like my grandparents called their best friends, you know, Mister and Mrs. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they were formal. They wore jackets and ties all the time. Yeah. So, and my my grandfather, when they came to America, I mean, the family, he was always religious. But I think when they came to America, my grandfather became more religious because that was the one thing that was um, familiar to him mm-hmm. that he could sort of lean on that, you know, hadn't changed. So he... He was religious, but my father kind of rebelled against that. So I think that that may have put a little bit of distance between the two of them. And I know, mm-hmm. I know that my father's brother rebelled even more against the religion and sort of like wanted to have nothing to do with it. Oh, really? So, yeah, yeah. So I think that that probably didn't help their relationship. And also, 
you know, as I said, my parents didn't play favorites, but their parents did play favorites. You know, mm-hmm. he was the older of the two, and he was the one who was supposed to be responsible for his younger brother. But his younger brother was, and still is, he was really bright. And I think that my grandparents just, you know, put all of their hopes on him. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, just they, they, he was the favorite. And my father very consciously was not. So I think he, you know, we all parent in response to the way we were parented and the things that we like, we do. And the things we don't, we didn't like, we do the opposite. So, so he would never play favorites with us because he knew what it was like to be not the favorite. Yeah. I think that's kind of a universal thing that you see more of. And that I think is important for people to kind of embrace a little bit and, and recognize, because I think there are those people who feel like, they are trapped in their family cycle. Yeah. Which is just still somewhat crazy to me how people allow that to happen, but it still does somehow. So when you, when you, if you have seven children, do you have favorites? Uh, with, with my parents, I don't think they really did or really showed that. I think my mom and she would probably deny this up and down. And I'm sorry to any of my siblings that listen to this, which I don't think any of them do. But I think there was a point where actually a very specific instance would be when my dad, it was probably a week before he died and he was unable to speak any longer. Really, Um, he had brain cancer and it just kind of deteriorated his thoughts and his physical abilities really quickly towards the end. And there was a time that I was in his hospital room and my mom was in there as well. And I think I was saying a couple things to my dad and, you know, I'm a 17 year old kid at this time that is dealing very horribly with this whole situation. And my dad at some point grabbed my, hand and brought it to his lips and he kissed each one of my fingertips one by one. And it was, that was a fairly large physical movement for him at that time, really. And after I was in the room at at that time, my mom said to me, he's never done anything like that with any of the other kids. And, you know he really, really loves you, and wow, so on. So that's amazing. Uh, yeah, I don't. I really don't think that I, I was a favorite or anybody was a favorite. Yeah. But I think that he, I think that he was really cognizant of that fact, and that you know he probably, I I saw in him a lot towards the end there that he was really bummed out about the humility that he was having to take on through his end days and you know how much I was taking helping take care of him at times and how much work everybody was having to do and his being immobile basically and you know all the 
quote unquote dirty work that we were having to do for him and take care of him. I think he really felt bad about it. I think that's probably a portion, a big portion of why he did that. So, yeah, but I mean, that's such a powerful thing that he did for you or did to you. Yeah. He, he gave you what you needed that not in that moment, but for the rest of your life, because you're still talking about it. Right. Um, which was probably given the state that he was in the only thing he could have done at that point. Yeah. That was his communication because he wasn't really talking or anything. And so that was his way of, you know, being able to talk to me and say that he loved me and cared about me and was sorry that this was happening. And so he took that, you know, very long process of doing that as showing that. So that's an incredible, it's an incredible story. Yeah. And it's an incredible gift that he gave you because again, this is how many years later and it's still emotionally impactful. Yeah. And it's how you remember him. And it's what, uh, you know, I, I, I feel like, and I felt like this for a while that uh, since my father died and I, I think about this a lot, that one of the things that we do or that we need to do for our kids is that we need to show them how to die. That mm. when we die and that this is, this is the takeaway that we need to show them how it's done so that they you know, know how to live without us. Mm-hmm. That's always how I, I felt about my father that I, that I'm coping with it because he prepared me for it, probably not even consciously. Mm-hmm. You know, the, what your father did for you was a little bit more conscious, but that was his way of preparing you. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I mean, that's having the ability to think through that at that time, you know, is I think potentially a little bit of a totally wrong word for it, but a gift yeah to older people to be able to have that time to you know you always talk about making your amends with others and having that ability to you know right some wrongs in your relationships but yeah what you said like being able to give others the peace to move forward or step away from your life and move on with theirs can also be a very large portion of that. Yeah. Well, this went extremely deep. <laughs> this is what we do when we talk about our dads though. Right? <laughs> yeah. Some, yeah. At some point it gets deep. Yeah. So, uh, Brad, I will allow you to allow, I will <laughs> give you, I will grant you the ultimate permission nice. to, uh, give some of your things that people can find you under, I know that your Twitter is available to everybody, which is Brad for the number four RDR. Yeah. yeah. Which can you tell me what that stands for? Brad Ford R. Oh, there you go. <laughs> okay. With a, with a four in the middle. And if anybody wants to check out my documentary film, Tree Man, you can check it out on Netflix or iTunes. Free Man. It's about the people who come to New York City every holiday season to sell Christmas trees to New Yorkers. I looked it up 
after you mentioned the title to me, and I know I've seen that cover before. So cool. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a holiday film. It's a, a film about Christmas made by two Jews, <laughs> as all of the as all the good Christmas films are. Yeah, and Capra. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much how you can follow me. Cool. And um, I will just say you can also listen to Brad and Stephen oh, A. Cook yeah. on their podcast. Yeah. Yeah, our podcast called the Amen Corner with a with former guest Stephen Cook, former Daddy Unscripted guest Stephen A. Cook. Stephen A. Cook. My, my partner in crime, not my life partner, but my my <laughs> podcast. Partner. And you guys record those every Saturday, right? We do it Saturday or Sunday. We usually drop on Sunday late morning. Okay. Stephen and I refer to each other as. My brother from another mother. <laughs> the big... Before I even started contacting Stephen about being on the podcast and was listening... Well, was listening afterwards, but before we kind of got it, everything lined up, I was just always referring to you guys as the Yankee Van Halen fans. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. There we go, as opposed to the Red Sox Van Halen fan. <laughs> yeah, which... And that would be me, I guess. Yeah, there you go. As long as we all have Van Halen, we're good. Right. We can yep. talk David about Lee it. Roth bringing people together still. Exactly. After all these years. Brings everybody else together, but not the, not the band. Right. Can't seem to make, yeah. make it happen with the guys that he spent most of his life with. But. With the Van Halen brothers. All right. Well, uh, thanks again for spending some time on the show. And I... I will tell you guys, uh, keep an eye out in probably a week or two weeks after this episode, we will have the second episode with Brad where we um, give you guys all the winning lottery numbers to everything. Yeah. So you better, you better tune into that. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to miss that one. One number right now. Six. There you go. That's so all you're getting. Six. We're not going to tell you what week that's for either. You're going to have to wait for that next exactly. episode. Exactly. Tune in next time. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Brad. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much for listening in. That ends our first episode with Brad Rothschild. Again, you can find Brad on Twitter at Brad the number four, RDR, and you can find his films, especially The Tree Man, on Netflix right now. You should check it out. And you can find his and Steven's podcast on all the ways that you can find a podcast, much like you found this one, as The Amen Corner. It's like a 30-minute long podcast with two guys hanging out, talking about a bunch of different stuff. Very cool interesting podcast i listen i subscribe i have listened to almost every single episode not gonna lie so again big thanks to brad for being a part of this podcast and spending his time with me his next episode will come out in a week or two so stay tuned for that where we talk about a lot of things regarding films and his career as an as a documentary filmmaker so very fascinating stuff in that episode, I guarantee. I want to also thank Humphreys McGee for the use of their music 
in all of the Daddy Unscripted podcast episodes. And specifically, I will assure you, all music in this podcast episode is by Umphreys McGee. So anything you're hearing in the background and during the intro and outro, that is all Umphreys McGee and so good. So thanks again to that band for being so gracious and letting me use their music in the podcast. And you can find Daddy Unscripted online at daddyunscripted.com. You'll be able to find some extra little tidbits about Brad and his career on the website daddyunscripted.com where the original blog started. And you can find Daddy Unscripted on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, all as Daddy Unscripted. You can send me an email with ideas for other guests or comments on how much you love these ones at daddyunscripted at gmail.com. So I love hearing from you guys. Keep that uh, information coming into me. And stay tuned. Like I said, in a couple of weeks, the next episode will come out with Brad. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>